Welcome back to Resilient AF. I'm your host, Austin. Today, we're going to shift gears in our conventional episodes. Originally, for our first few episodes, we focused on resiliency from a personal perspective. Airmen telling their stories and discussing their failures, but ultimately, their triumphs over adversity. Today, we're going to discuss leadership, but more specifically, resilient leadership and how calm leaders can build a climate of trust in their organizations that promotes resiliency. When I first started this podcast, I never dreamed or imagined that it would have this level of following and support, especially after just a month of production. A few weeks ago, retired Lieutenant General Daniel P. Leaf reached out and asked me if there was any way that he could contribute to the show. So I asked him to share his perspective on resiliency and leadership. I hope the following conversation holds at least a small piece of wisdom that sparks reflection for you and your leadership style. Let's listen in. So good afternoon, General. How are you doing today? I'm good, Austin. Good to see you and have a chance to talk. Uh, again, thank you for uh, volunteering your time to help with this effort. Um, I'm really excited to, for you to be able to share your insights, your leadership insights with our audience. So for those of you listening, the theme of today's episode is resilient leadership. Mm-hmm. So the general has a few uh, stories he's going to share with us and a few insights. So general, uh, please, the floor is yours. Okay. Thanks, Austin. And first of all, uh, thanks for connecting with me. There are good things about Facebook. That's how we found each other. I think through the quarantine university, the Air Force Quarantine University. And I'm impressed with what you're doing and appreciate your efforts to to help promote effective leadership. I'm a little reluctant, I have to say this at the outset, to go on the record about leadership. We chatted earlier, but you know, there's some there's some risk there. The risk, first of all, is that my memory isn't perfect. Okay, that's not a risk. That's a fact. So I I worry about people who've known me or been in the circumstances I'm going to describe, and they go, well, that's not what happened. Well, maybe they're right, but it's how I remember it, and how I remember the stories I tell myself as much as telling anybody else are important to forming your life view. Uh, about leadership and about everything else. Uh, the second thing is it it sounds a little self-promoting because I'm going to talk about stuff that worked out well. Okay, And there's plenty of stuff in my life as a leader that didn't work out so well. In other words, I have screwed things up, but golf coaches don't teach you how not to hit the ball in the water. They teach you how to hit the ball on the green a few feet from the hole, right? So I, I've hit plenty of balls in the water, both metaphorically and in reality. But I'm going to talk about things I did well, fully knowing that I made a bunch of mistakes and I learned from those too. So maybe some other time we'll talk about stuff I've screwed up. Might be a longer podcast. And then and then finally is the the one that I fear the most and what what I value most in life is when I run into somebody that I served with and they say, hey, General, you don't remember me. Probably true, because some days I wonder who I'm shaving. Um, but 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 we were together at name of base. And I remember this. and It was a good thing. I value that. I'm sure, certain there are people out there who would say, no, he wasn't that good a guy. Okay. Sorry if I wasn't. Sorry for those that 
that weren't happy working for me, but this is the way I remember the lessons that I learned. And resilient leadership starts with being calm and serene. It's that simple. And the more difficult circumstances get, the more important it is for the leader to not join in hand-wringing and gnashing of teeth. There are going to be plenty of people who will get all excited, and you just don't need to be one of them because it doesn't help. And that's how I look at leadership. Are you, are you doing things that help? Are you contributing to solutions and not contributing to your own emotional release or something like that? So the first story uh, goes back to uh, the spring, early spring of 1999, when I was the 31st Air Expeditionary Wing Commander at Aviano and the home station 31st Fighter Wing Commander, flying the F-16 and leading the, that part of the air war over Serbia, often called Kosovo. And I didn't have much F-16 time, but leaders lead from the front in our Air Force. So I was flying combat missions, trying not to screw up. You know, that was the bottom line. Trying to be as brave as the people around me. And they set a high standard. And uh, as part of that, I had to get, I had fly a long uh, night combat mission, seven hours. Longest mission I flew during the war. And I came back from that, and you know, if you have adrenaline pumping for seven hours, you're kind of whipped. And I landed and was walking in the debrief from this mission to debrief the airplane and then talk to intelligence about what had happened and so on and so forth, through all the admin of a post-combat mission. And a great young captain, almost major, came running up to me named Buster. And he was typically, you know, one of the great airmen that I've worked with. And he was very excited, very urgently told me that I needed to get back to the command post right away. And first of all, to be resilient and calm and, you know, and not overreact, I said, no, I don't, Buster. I don't need to get back to the command post right away. Frankly, I need to go to the restroom. I need to turn in my nine millimeter. You'd turn in my secrets and debrief this sortie. So, no, I don't. Oh, sir, really, really, you've got to get back to wingtip was the name for this commandment. Go, Buster, calm down, brother. I'm not doing that. And finally, he figured out how to explain to me that, yeah, I needed to get back to the command post right away. I had a wonder, I had wonderful subordinate commanders at every level, and the ops group commander, Jeff Eberhardt, was particularly awesome. Very steady Eddie kind of a combat leader and an outstanding combat pilot. And he said, sir, Buster said to me, sir, Colonel Eberhardt, who was back in the wing command, wing command post, said, Colonel Eberhardt never gets excited. He's excited. <laughs> okay, I probably need to get back to the command post right away. And what I did know, and Buster didn't know this either was one of the F-117 stealth fighters assigned to our wing because we had airplanes from all over, NATO, US, Marines, et cetera, et cetera, um, had been shot down and the pilot was down behind, behind enemy lines. And those are two pretty big things. One having the first stealth fighter ever shot down, 
protect my having pilot who needed rescuing. So I needed to get back to the command post right away. And just how that was conveyed to me by both the major and the actions of the Colonel, Jeff Eberhardt, the outscript commander, those are, that's pretty impressive leadership from them, not for me. And so I went back there and we worked on it for a while. Uh, we launched a few more airplanes to try to get the pilot, a uh, young captain named Dale Zelko rescued. No, he, he was a lieutenant colonel, I think. Like I said, I am my age after all, so forgive my memory such as it isn't. So anyway, um, we were working on getting rescued. The things we could do for Maviano, obviously many other people were involved. And uh, we ran out of things to do. And there was a pause, an operational pause, where we had to get more refueling aircraft and so on. And so there was a break in the action. And as I told you, I did the, made one of the smartest leadership decisions I made in combat. I took a nap. And you were surprised when I told you that when we talked the first time, Austin. But part of it was simply, I was tired, man. I'd had a long day. I'd flown a long combat mission. But more importantly, were two. Uh, there were two other factors to it. One is I couldn't do anything right then. And I trusted those people who worked for me who were doing things. So why waste your time? and Why meddle in their business? And the other thing was, I knew that I would need to have my act together in some number of hours when we did or did not rescue the pilot behind enemy lines. And as you can imagine, there are a lot of people who wanted to talk to the wing commander, who should have known better, by the way, about this stealth airplane that had been shot down and so on and so forth. But I went and took a nap and I slept so well on the cot in my office and wing headquarters that the wing intelligence officer, another great guy, and I'm smiling every time I mention these people who work for me cut because they were they were airmen and and I loved them. Um but he had to shake me to wake me up once the pilot was rescued. I was sleeping that deeply. Oh wow. Okay. So I got the rest rest I needed. I let people do their jobs. But I also said very explicitly, or maybe it was implied, I trust you. I trust you all enough to do your jobs that I'm going to do what I need to do. And right now that's take a nap. So, so that's story number one. Let me take a breath and see if you want me to go on to story number two. Well, I've got, I've got a few questions. So mm -hmm. when we spoke before, you really emphasized self-care. And I think in that moment, you kind of exhibited two really great qualities of leadership. One was you delegated, you trusted those people to do the things that mm -hmm. they had been trained to do. And I, I know if I was, you know, in the AOC or whatnot that night, I would have said, mm -hmm. man, this guy must really trust us to make this happen <laughs> and to get things done. But also that's a great example of how important self-care is in leadership. And I think yeah. some people get, they feel a little selfish. Um, yeah, I think there is some selfishness and I'm going to jump right in Austin because uh, we didn't talk about why I'm sensitive to that. I'm sensitive to that because of all the time I spent working directly and indirectly with our army. Mm -hmm. And it started as a young Ford air controller in Korea. 
decades ago. Um, but I've worked throughout my career with the Army a lot, including being the senior airman with the land component commander during the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And I will say this about my Army, which I love, and I have great friends who served in our Army and still are up to and including four stars. But they suck at fatigue management. They're terrible at it. And there is a, a machismo that is not gender limited to, I've got to be here because things are happening um, and they can't happen without me or I can't let my ex, I, I don't know what it is. It's a cultural flaw in the army. And I saw in combat in 2003, the performance of senior leaders who I love, admire, and respect, who I've, I've known since we were majors at the Army Command and General Staff College at Leavenworth together. I watched their performance go downhill steadily. This was after, a couple of years after this incident. But they saw less. They didn't take care of themselves, and everything became a blur. It was a, the, the fatigue had an operational impact. So, yeah, take care of yourself. It, it is selfish to think that you're so important that they can't do anything without you. It's also not very mission-oriented. You know, right. I've had debates throughout my career as a leader because um, I have three things that I worry about as a leader. First is mission, 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 mission. Okay, well, does mission come before people? You're damn right it does. That's why we have people. So. The second is discipline, and the third is fun, which is people. But it's the third. We exist for the mission. We're wearing, we, I was, you are wearing the, and, and if you don't take care of yourself, you're not as good at the mission as you need to be. Oh. Sorry, go ahead, Austin. I jumped in there. No, no, I appreciate that insight. Um, but my, my next question is, you know, from your experience, how does your barometer for chaos affect your followers? Hmm. Um, well, you know, it's I'm very, very reluctant to use parental uh, analogies or metaphors because it makes it sound like the people who work for us are children and you're not. They're not, uh, but you know, the family acts like mom and dad. And I come from a big family, I had six siblings. Um, and you know, we, you act like mom and dad. And so mom and dad are going crazy. Guess what? The kids are going crazy. They're fighting. Kids are fighting. Um, so I think it's very important that, that those who happen to be in a leadership position uh, set a standard and make it a norm. There are four things that govern human behavior. This is my view. Norm, standards, rules, and laws. Okay, norms are what's normal, what's normal behavior. And it's generally self-imposed. Standards, Air Force standards. The three core values are Air Force standards. They're not rules. I don't think they're in a regulation or an AFI somewhere, but they're standards. It's what we do. Rules are, in fact, codified, but not with the force of law. The rules of golf, for example, which never helped me, but they're codified. But I'm not going to go to jail if I use a foot wedge, but they're there. 
and then laws. Okay, the norms are how people normally behave, and they are the most important and the most effective. And the leader's response to crisis, chaos, whatever, hitting the fan, yeah, it becomes a norm. I had a, and I have a gazillion stories, as, as I told you, of times where I think I did pretty well at not getting the list. I had a great boss as a one-star when I was a colonel group commander. And there was something that really made him mad. And, um, and again, I'm smiling because he was really mad. I really got my butt chewed. Uh, and as as it, as it turned out, he was wrong. But at least he did it in front of my deputy. So I had that going for me, which wasn't so nice. It was an issue, but he was wrong about the issue. We were on our way, me and my deputy, to a, a stand-up, an ops group stand-up. And we went into, the, into that meeting with all the assembled squadron commanders and and I calmly said to the group, said, hey, the boss is upset about this. I know what you're doing. We're trying to do the right thing, but he's still the boss. And um, let's make sure we're doing the right thing. And let's understand that the reason he's mad is because he cares about the troops. It was a cold weather gear issue. And, uh, and my deputy said to me afterwards, he said, boss, I can't believe you didn't share the pain. Why would I do that? You know, I mean, the boss was well-intended and he was a good guy. He was a good boss, very demanding. Mm -hmm. And my people were, everybody was trying to do the right thing and generally doing the right thing. And he just didn't know it. So yeah, whatever, but what good would it have done? We'll come back to that, that theme. Um, what good would it have done to, to vent my frustration? I don't like being yelled at. Well, I think it didn't that make really, me feel good, but what good what, wouldn't have helped, right? Yeah. Well, I think that's a perfect segue into your next story. And it kind of, you know, has a theme of leadership and trust. So if, please, if you don't mind. Okay. And this is on to the, the hung bomb, right? The hung bomb, 2,000 pounds of unhappiness. <laughs> High explosive unhappiness. It's that we're back at Aviano a few weeks after the 117 was shot down, the pilot rescued, and actually maybe a few days, and um, uh, flying a mission that was time constrained and very sensitive. We're trying to uh, trying to take out a SAM site, a mobile SAM system, and its commander that were the most aggressive of all the Serbs. And which would later shoot down the guy who's currently the chief of staff of the Air Force, uh, General Dave Goldfein, who was then Lieutenant Colonel Dave Goldfein, commander of the world-famous and highly respected Triple Nickel America's greatest fighter squadron. And yes, maybe I was once the Nickel commander too, and that's why I say it that way. But but so this guy was a problem, and this SAM system was something we we're trying to address. We had a complex plan, and we thought we were going to be able to go kind of trick him into identifying himself and his location and, and and basically destroy him and his SAM system. But when I taxied out for this, I was flying number two with uh, one of the great majors in, in the wing at Aviano. 
And we both had some experience, mission experience that made us well suited to this A and B. I think the schedulers figured, you know, if the boss gets shot down, everybody moves up one. You know, it's a it's a career progression plan on the squadron schedulers part. But um, I had a problem with the airplane. And so I, I had I went out to the end of runway arming area, had to come back, get the airplane fixed, go back out. And now we're very time constrained, complex mission and uh, we're rushed. And it was raining. It was a late night, like a 1230 in the morning takeoff. And we took off and we rushed down to the tanker to refuel and we joined the other F-16s that we we're going to tuck ourselves in with and go through this deceptive plan. And the SAM site never came up that night. It was their night off. You know, they were doing self-care or something. It was self-care because it would have been a sudden onset of lead poisoning if they, if they had been up that night. <laughs> and um, so we went to our alternate target, an airfield in Serbia. And I had two laser-guided bombs, 2,000-pound 2, laser-guided bombs, and hit the bomb release button, the pickle button in my S-16. You know, it's night, and only one bomb came off. That's not good for several reasons. One is I've got 2,000 pounds of, of extra weight that I'd like to not have as I leave the area that I've just bombed because people generally don't respond well to that. <laughs> and two, the airplane doesn't fly very well because of the imbalance, this, the, you know, the 2,000 pounds on one side. And I've got to go back and land the airplane at Aviano where it's dark, going to be dark still. The weather's bad. The runway's wet. And um, and that's going to be a problem. So as I sorted this all out with my wingman and we went uh, out over the Adriatic, I tried to jettison the bomb and even the bomb and the rack it was mounted on. And, and me and the bomb were not going to part company until after landing or something bad happened. And in analyzing all that, I figured out that it became obvious that the only reason the bomb in the rack wouldn't come off was somebody had left a safety pin in. In our haste to get launched in the bad weather at night, somebody screwed up. Big mistake. And I was pretty unhappy about that, both because it was 2,000 pounds I didn't drop after going to all this trouble to get into enemy territory, but also the it was a real challenge to land it, especially the bad weather night, wet runway. So I, I'm understating it. I was really mad. But fortunately, I had enough time to flying back to Aviano to say, okay, the whole base is going to know that I had this hung bomb. Um, I don't need to make a federal case about it. I need to make sure it doesn't happen again. So I went through a very significant conscious mind shift, mindset shift because I had time to do that, thankfully. So I got back and uh, flew the approach at night, the ILS approach to, I'm trying to remember the runway number, landing to the Northeast there at Aviano. And I will tell you that landing that airplane was the hardest thing I ever did, just pure flying wise in my entire career. It was a, it was a handful, um, but I did and uh, landed and went off into the area where they deal with problems like that, the hung ordnance area. And one of the crew chiefs got on the headset, is talking to me and eventually says, hey, sir, 
um, guess what? Somebody left a pin in and my response is not suitable for a podcast, but it was basically no kidding, Sherlock. And, um, and then he launched into a stream of apologies. And, went, and I was not feeling benevolent. I was feeling practical. I said, stop. I don't want any apologies. I want you all to figure out what happened. Don't let it happen again. All right. So basically shut up. Fix it. Taxi back into parking and flying with the five tenth buzzards that time, another great squadron. And their squadron leadership was all lined up waiting for me because they knew the boss had a hung bomb. So I thought they would. Um, and they, I, I always say the look on their faces was like, he's got a gun. Because they did. <laughs> and, and they knew I wasn't going to be happy about this. But they were, it was as sheepish a group as you ever saw stand at attention. I taxied in, shut down the airplane, and got out. And once again, there's a torrent of apologies. Sir, we're sorry. We won't let it. You know, we'll figure out what happened. We'll have an investigation. We'll do this. We'll do that. Kind of like, dudes, dudettes, stop. I don't want to hear anything. I just want you to fix it. Okay? I don't want this to happen again. Y'all figure it out. Oh, sir, well, I, I trust y'all to figure it out, but figure it out. I'm not going to tell you how to figure it out because that's not my job. It is your job and you better fix it. As it turned out, we dropped over 6 million pounds of ordnance during that war, 78 days and nights of air combat operations. That was the only hung bomb. So they figured it out. That's pretty good. By the way, we won that war. So as I'm walking away from the jet, the maintenance officer, a young captain, comes running up to me from behind and, hey, sir, I'll find out the who the load team chief in Andorone was and I'll send him to see you. I got upset all over again um, and said, no, don't do that. Are you not listening to me? I'm moving on. I wish this hadn't happened. It did. We survived. Don't let it happen again. I don't want to see the load team chief. Just fix it. And by now, my frustration is that trying to give good, clear direction, and this captain's not getting it. So I went into debrief, and I was debriefing, uh, sitting at the computer terminal, putting the stuff in about the jet. And there's a knock at the door in the dark little space where the debrief is, and uh, the door opens, and it's a young senior airman, tall, very fit. He looks like a munitions guy because, you know, they towed around a lot of stuff and they're generally in good shape. He's dripping wet because the weather sucks. They were operating in in horrible conditions. And now I'm wondering, is nobody listening to me? Especially when I say yes. And he said, sir, I'm senior Airman Carter. I was your load team chief in end of runway. <laughs> We have ignition and liftoff of the wing commander once again as he goes ballistic because nobody is listening to me. And I said something profane. And then I told them, and he interrupted me to say, sir, I know that. They told me you didn't want to see me. And they tried to stop me. But I needed to come see you because it was my responsibility to ensure your aircraft was properly armed for combat. And I need you to know that I failed in that responsibility. 
and it won't happen again. That, you know, I, and yeah, I am getting emotional remembering this. I've told this story hundreds of times, but every time I think this is a kid who, I don't know how old he was, um, but a young kid who's been working 12 to 16 hour days in horrible weather in very demanding circumstances. But he felt compelled to share that he knew he'd screwed up and it wouldn't happen. And as I told you the first time we talked, um, Austin, the reason he did that was he'd been trusted. If we were in an environment there where you weren't trusted, where everybody was looking over your shoulder, assuming the worst about what you're going to do, that would absolutely be the last thing he'd do is to come forward and say, hey, I screwed up. I've told that story hundreds of times. Um, I don't know that his name was Carter, but I remember him. And I I never talked to him again, uh, which is, might have been one of the questions he had. I didn't know if I should, you know, discipline him or decorate him because he had screwed up and it could have killed me, which I thought was significant. Um, but he, he's somebody who is, who impacted me as a leader. You know, I served another almost, well, a long time after that. Ten years. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I've told the story a lot. And I told the story at squadron officer school once several years ago. And a young captain came up to me and says, hey, sir, you don't remember me. And I said, you're right. I said, I do. And he said, I was an airman at Aviano. You told that story when I was in ALS, an airman leadership school. Wow. And that's what, that's why I became an officer. Wow. So Senior Airman Carter, if that's his real name, didn't just affect me. It's cascaded on and it it happened because he was trusted. And that's the funny thing about good leadership is that it not only affects the people that it directly interacts with, but it has a ripple effect and it allows those people to become a vehicle to further propagate that leadership. You know, when we talked about this the first time, we talked about how trust builds the desire for accountability because mm-hmm. there's a sense of pride in the trust that's given. But I want to comment on something that you that I didn't really realize or I didn't didn't really um, come to mind until hearing you tell the story the second time. It was very interesting. You said that it was his he said to you that it was his responsibility. And I'm trusting your recollection on this one. Yeah. (laughs) yeah, The the word responsibility um, versus the word fault. I think there's some very deliberate phrasing there because he might not have been the one that was supposed to pull the pin. No, I don't think he was, but he was in charge of the pin pulling. And Therefore, it was his responsibility to ensure that it happened. But and I I just I love that that was the word choice versus saying it was my fault that it didn't happen. He focused on the responsibility versus placing blame. Yeah, it was it was as beautiful a statement on leadership from a young senior as you could ever get. And so my final question on that story is. What is throughout your career, what has been the greatest lesson that you have learned about building trust in a unit in any of any size 
so that you can further propagate that type of accountability? Um, I think it's really pretty simple and I'm not that smart, so it has to be simple for me to apply it. Um, I think it's let people do their job and expect them to do their job well. And if they don't do their job well, don't assume that they've intentionally screwed it up because people don't get in the car or whatever and come to work going, boy, I wonder how bad I can make this today. You know, they're going to try to, at the very least, avoid the pain of being caught in a screw up. And generally, they're going to try to do a good job. And some are going to try to do an exceptional job. So trust them to do their job. And I, I told you a brief story. I'll tell this one again. Uh, uh, when I became an operations officer in the F-15 with very short notice, you know, one of those one day you're not, the next day I was an ops officer in a fighter squadron at Luke. And it's good fighter squadron, but not yet a great fighter squadron. And um, there was a problem with the schedule. The schedule in, in fighter training is always a house of cards. And I came into the scheduling office and the head scheduler, a young captain, great, another great airman, or a million of them, um, said, hey, boss, the schedule just exploded because this happened or that happened. And Somebody could fail a ride, an airplane could break, the weather could be bad. There, any number of circumstances could absolutely explode a schedule. And I, I said, uh, okay, now what? He said, well, what do you mean? I said, well, what do you want to do about it? And it was clear that he'd been used to having the solution given to him, but he was the scheduler. So he grabbed the magnets on the whiteboard that we scheduled with and moved them around and said, I think we could do this tomorrow. And it's, you know, this is time sensitive because you have to configure airplanes and all that. It was a good enough solution. It wasn't what I would have done. I could have been more brilliant because I was older and I'm me, you know, so. But it was good enough. So I said, okay, Strokes, let's do that. Frank Stokes, retired Air National Guard two-star now, but a young captain at the time. And uh, he looked at me like, what? Excuse me? Yeah, do what you said. And uh, I wonder if any of these folks from the Killer Claws squadron time will remember it this way. The way I remember it, that changed the squadron. And I had a great squadron commander who was also new. We kind of went in quickly. And, and it's yeah, it's empowerment, which is a buzzword. But when it happens and people have the trust and the accountability and get credit for the success, and if they fail, are not assumed to be trying to fail, but people say, okay, why did you fail? Did you not have tools? Did you not have the training? Were you, was it a willful violation of my trust? Almost never is. Then they behave differently and they take, they take on that culture of being the best they can. Agreed. Definitely. Um, and you said, as you were saying, it's, it's a buzzword. And I thought about it and I yeah. said, well, in my mind, I was thinking it's a buzzword until it's implemented. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It's a, it's, empowerment sounds so squishy. It's a very tough thing. It's a, you know, I don't think any, it's, it's not a kind of necessarily kind and of gentle kind of space, safe space, hug, 
hugs at every turn sort of leadership. It's tough when you say, okay, you got this. Don't screw it up. And you, and you asked me in our earlier conversation, and I'll edit it, edit my response for the, the blog, but you know what I really said. Um, and, I, and I suspect that your some of your astute listeners will deduce what words aren't included. But as a leader, when I go in into a new organization, I would, you know, how do you let them know you trust them? You tell them. So my message was, I want you to know that I trust you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you to do your job. Okay. And I fully expect that. And if you don't, aren't able to do your job, I'm going to wonder, was it because of tools, training, time? What, you know, not going to assume the worst. However, if you willfully violate my trust, and I know you've willfully violated my trust, I will kill you. Okay, and, and that's exactly, how, well, it's almost exactly how I said it. How many times did somebody willfully violate my trust? As far as I know, never. There are folks who made mistakes, you know, life's complicated, professional life and personal life is complicated. But I don't remember anybody ever coming to work and intentionally going, you know, Colonel Leaf, General Leaf wanted this, and I therefore did exactly the opposite. So, or I lied about something. Sure, nobody wants to come to work and suck at their job. Yeah. At least that I've ever met. Yeah, and they all uh, know, and the you're exactly right. And I could go on and on, but I know we've only got so much time in this. In well, this uh, podcast too. Well, so for our last, um, well, for you sharing your last experience, you kind of had a story that influenced you and kind of hit home. You mind sharing with us? Yeah, yeah, it did, and it happened after the stories I've told earlier. But it, but it is representative of the influence of the most influential leader in my life, who is my daughter. And she was uh, mature from the get-go. She's an incredible person and leader. Served six years in our Air Force uh, as an intelligence officer and married to a, another fighter pilot, which to me says she didn't really hate her father. Um, but um, she's, a, she's a, an incredible human being. Yating Lee. And I, uh, and I learned a lot from her. And I have more stories than the one I told you and the one I'm going to tell now. But the the one that I think sums up this resilient philosophy that we've talked about, or resilient approach to leadership, is uh, goes back to September 11, 2001. I was the Air Force XOR, the Director of Requirements. I'm not sure what we call it now, but I'm sure we've changed the name several times because we do. And um, the uh, the attacks on uh, the World Trade Center and subsequently the Pentagon occurred. And I was kind of right in the middle of it, middle of it, not of the impact. I was in a safe part of the Pentagon down in the basement, but then worked to evacuate the senior leader. I was a young one start um, just back from uh, Aviano. Um, and then set up the crisis action team in the command post, the op center and all that. So I was kind of busy. And by the way, the cell phones were uh, all trashed anyway. So I, I didn't talk to my daughter for 
hours, six or eight. I'm not sure exactly how many. And I wound up being on duty the first night too. So we weren't going to spend a lot of time talking about it. So when I did get a chance to talk to her, and frankly, I don't remember if it was in person or on the phone. I just don't recall, but I do recall what she said. I asked her, she had been in high school. She was 16 years old at Bishop O'Connell High School in Arlington. And I asked her uh, how she learned of the attacks. And she said, well, dad, uh, they made an announcement on the PA system. And then they called us all into the auditorium. And then they put the TV on. And she said kids were crying and screaming. And I said, did you cry? And we must have been together because I remember her looking at me. And she said, Dad, what good would that have done? And she was right. Now, I will admit, I, my feelings were a little hurt because her dad could have been killed for Pete's sake. And she didn't. And uh, But what good would it have done? And then she added, because she, you know, we'd, we'd been through a lot. She said, you're always okay anyway, but what good would it, have, would it have done? So as a leader, try to do good. Try to do what helps the unit. Try not to do what helps you feel better. And above all else, don't try to do what makes you think you'll look good because you won't. If you try to look good, you're going to look bad. You're either going to look bad from above or below or both. So try to do the right thing that will work well for the unit mission and as much as it can for your people. Yes, there was a, and we didn't get there. We got there in our pre-interview, but uh, whatever rabbit hole we went down the first time, we didn't get there this time, but there was uh, a quote that you threw out that I want to throw out for our audience. And it was that the most rewarding part of leadership of your career comes when you have the epiphany that there is more reward in supporting and recognizing others versus seeking recognition yourself. Yeah. The, the, um, the enduring happiness and sense of accomplishment, um, comes from watching people that have worked with you and for you succeed and helping a unit accomplish the mission. And personal stuff feels good. I'm as competitive as anybody. In fact, the audience can't see this, but I'm in my PT gear because I'm going to go out and kick my daughter's butt in our fitness challenge, our quarantine fitness challenge. I got my rings on my... So I'm, I like winning. I'm all about winning. But winning as a leader is achieving the mission, teaching and enabling your people to be successful and it's it feels good if you're any kind of human being at all it does all right wow well general thank you so much for sharing your experience with us thank you so much for your perspective on effective leadership or should i say resilient leadership um i i know that it it definitely has had a effect on me and the way that i view my leadership style so thank you so much for that and Thank you for your time and for being willing to share. My pleasure. And uh, to you for doing this. I think it's a great initiative. Uh, It gives me, uh, it reinforces my uh, faith in and hope for our Air Force and for all the folks that are listening. 
the one thing I'll tell you is you can you can make a difference. You can change the world. And if you ever stop believing that you can, uh, you're wrong. One person can make all the difference in the world. It might be in a very local level, or it might be way beyond that. But by being a good, effective leader, who accomplishes the mission, takes care of people, enables their success, you can change the world. All right. Well, thank you so much, General. I appreciate your time. My pleasure. You too. Take care. Stay in touch. Thank you for joining us. I hope General Leaf's leadership and experience has been able to reach you in some way. Remember, leaders need self-care, not selfish care, so that they can be at their best to lead and serve others. You cannot pour from an empty vessel, and as the first sergeants say, know when to take a knee. If you'd like to be a guest on Resilient AF, please email your story or experience to resilientaf.mail at gmail.com. I hope you'll join us next time and have a blessed day.